Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a show featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of art, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesha Montasser. Before we get into it, I suggest you grab a scoop of your favorite ice cream because my guest, Ahmed El Mari, the founder of Canvas Gelato, and I are about to do just that. Ahmed considered himself an outsider in the F&B industry as someone who didn't start out in the food business. Just like the lighthouse, Canvas Gelato was launched in 2017 in the midst of a wave of new homegrown F&B brands that came to life in Dubai. Since then, Ahmed has evolved from someone who quote-unquote hid behind his brand, more on that later, to someone who talks about Canvas Gelato with a high degree of self-reflection and confidence. Ahmed is our first podcast guest, by the way, who came with a caravan of gelato tops frozen at minus 70 degrees. Okay, I'm not hinting you should all do this, but I'm just pointing out how high the bar is now. The standout flavor for me was a smoked tea gelato called Hoyicha. You'll hear all about it as we wrap up the episode. I feel we've been having this conversation online, offline, a little bit of both anyway. And if I, we have to now bring everything we've been talking about for the last year uh, here and there and condense into one beautiful conversation. So I'm very excited. I met you first. Well, I didn't meet you. Um, I met your brand, Canvas Gelato, first through a friend who came to my house, as you know. Doha Marzouk. Doha exactly. With a few of your beautiful... Uh, Tubs. I thought everything about it I loved. It was super minimalist. I loved the names, the actual naming. I loved that it was kind of handwritten in this Flumaster look. So, and I was very intrigued. Everybody was a huge hit. I can't remember. I think it may have been Aid. And then I investigated. And then we got to know each other. And your journey has been ongoing for how many years now? Uh, 2017, Ramadan. 2017, Ramadan. So let's go a little bit to the beginning. Um, first of all, as by way of introduction, what brought you to food and to this business? How did this even come about as an idea? Uh, I stumbled upon it. Okay. If you recall, there was a period in time where um, the scene was dominated by franchises and a certain type of restaurant and cafe. That was always the case. That was always the case. Up until probably around 2017. Probably earlier, but there were attempts of uh, local uh, concepts to uh, pop up here and there. Yeah. And some of them have uh, you know, flourished. Ah. I recall the beginnings being with uh, a few concepts like uh, Wild Pita. So Wild Pita, um, not sure if you've heard of them, but they used to make amazing shawarmas. They're not around anymore. But it was, for me, the first experience of... A local brand. A, a community-driven local brand. Yeah. Uh, then came the uh, wave of uh, specialty cafes, if you remember. Yeah, for me. Tom and Serge's of the Tom world. Tom and Serge's. No, but Tom and Serge has been, I think, I think it started before Tom and Serge, but Tom and Serge has elevated the uh, cafe culture. Yeah, it uh, went kind scene. of more in a kind of cooler. Yes. They were earlier, 100% right. They were Shakespeare's of the world. I mean, you know, yes. think about it. Then you had, uh, you had the burger joints that were trying to, you know, uh, make an appearance, and then Salt popped up Yes, as another brand that I think has uh, flourished with uh, community engagement. And you and are close to Salt, um, in I'm, full I'm, disclosure. In full disclosure, I'm too close to Salt. <laughs> I think too close to Salt, um, too close to their liking as well. Yeah. Um, Can you explain why you're close to Salt uh, my before sister, we go on? So yeah, my sister you're... Amal, uh, shout out to Amal and Deem. Biggest, biggest supporters I've ever had. And That's I think great. biggest supporters I'll ever have in, during this uh, journey. Beautiful. 
older or younger? Younger. So younger uh, in calendar years, but older when it comes to wisdom and, uh, you know, <laughs> F&B savvy and all that. That's beautiful. Yeah. So she's one of the co-founders of... She is one half of the Salt Girls, as they used to be called Salt before. Salt Experience, yeah. That kind of intrigued me because a lot of people, when they see uh, an F&B concept, they, they get inspired by the success that happens. But for me, it was more about the grind that happened before the success and how, you know, an individual... How difficult it is how to pull it off. How difficult it is to pull it off and how hard it is for you to not only prove it to yourself that it's worth doing, to prove it to other people who are around you that may not share the same vision as you do. And can I just pause here for a second? In a way, Salt's success can be a huge inspiration for you. Yes, of course. But it could also be intimidating, right? In the sense of, you know, I'm thinking about my own brand. You know, there is always a bit of a conversation of, of me being, in, I was very inspired by a certain number of previous homegrown brands that have succeeded. But there's intimidation, not by the, 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 the by salt, but the fear of failure. You know, can I also make it work, right? I mean, they go hand in hand, I think with almost every entrepreneur. Yeah, of course. But if you look at, most of the concepts now, regardless of whether it was all Thomas Search or, you know, you've had a few brands who have flourished and became evolved into holding companies of different restaurant brands. Uh, what used to be called Bull and Roo now is called Eat X. And, you know, Salt grew into being a few other restaurants Cetra, like Cetra, the uh, independent uh, food company. Has this been done before? Of course. We had the Ben Hindi uh, restaurants a few years ago where Japango and many Chinese and all those other uh, brands were, you know, in the market, but they're probably not as relevant anymore as they used to be. So there are, you know, there are uh, ways for you to succeed, but it it's a lot of effort for you to discount the negative voices that you, you know, you hear around you. What defines the word you just used, relevant? Because I agree with you. When we look at the first stage of homegrown Dubai restaurants or UAE restaurants, some of them are no longer with us, but some of them are still here, but as you said, have lost the cultural relevance in a way. How do you maintain that relevance in your view when you think about your own brand? If you get to know, do let me know, please, because I have no idea. <laughs> I have some ideas, and I have some ideas of why I think your brand remains relevant, even though we're today in 2022, and in fact has 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 grown, and in both perception and and appreciation, and and all of those things. And I think one of the clues to me has always been what I actually started with, which is you focused on the key qualities that make a brand succeed. The rest is noise, so to speak, and you didn't try to go for the noise, which over time can become less relevant whether it's, you know, the aesthetics or the packaging or the branding or all of that, that is important. But if the actual product is not strong enough, that will not carry you through the years, in my view. So what, what, what makes it relevant to the scene is what makes it relevant to you as an individual, because you are part of that scene. And what was missing to you? Was it more a gelato factor or? It was, it was two things. It was uh, one, the intention was to, uh, I've, I've been inspired by the food movement. I wanted to be a part of that food movement, but I wanted to be, rather than be one of many, be a contributor to everybody else and try and fit in and uh, fit into a puzzle piece that nobody was catering to. And which one was that puzzle piece? It was ice cream made from scratch using you know, 
let's not use uh, fresh or organic or uh, those terminologies, but using actual real ingredients. Real ingredients, yeah. Uh, rather than use flavorings and syrups and all that. So to, when when you when when that decision was made, there were um, a few questions that were raised. One of them was, why didn't anybody do this before? Uh, maybe because it doesn't work. So you know, you when you start off with a concept, you do your own research and you try and see, you know, where can you contribute. So I uh, bought a few ice cream books. I started making ice cream alone. Uh, found out that there are gaps that I need to fill. And that can only be done with a course. So I took on a course. I took the course, and uh, one of the instructors in the course on the last day was like, oh. he started talking to the students and asking them, so what are your plans? And We had uh, people from all around the region. We had uh, an individual from India who wanted to do an ice cream shop in Goa, which made sense. I said I wanted to make an a delivery brand that I can deliver ice cream you know, to houses. Like, why would that be, you know, an option? Why would that be a good idea? I, said, I don't know because I'd like to eat ice cream at home. That's how it started. Today, that seems very prescient and extremely smart to have not focused necessarily on a physical space. But your typical thought process is, I'm going to make gelato. I'm going to get a shop somewhere presumably in a mall or somewhere dense, and I will start like that. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. Why? Uh, pro- well, maybe uh, one of them is a lack of resources okay. at that time. And when you do not come from a certain industry, uh, you would want to do things a little bit different because, I agree with A, you. you think that you can do things different, and you don't know better. You're just experimenting. Um, so the other question was, so what does your menu look like? And the first flavor I said was black sesame. And he was like, why would anybody want to eat black sesame ice cream? I don't know. I go to a Japanese restaurant and I enjoy having black sesame. Why, why wouldn't I want to have it at home? And then he clearly, uh, he bluntly said, I don't think this is going to work. Said, well, there's only one way to find out. If, if it doesn't work, what I gain from it is the experience and learning. So, you know, we... I end up taking the course and probably around nine months of recipe development and tweaking and all that. And the first batch that I made after the course. So we meet with friends every Thursday when the weekend was Friday and Saturday. And I put it in a styrofoam box. And uh, we go for dinner. And after dinner, I'm, I tell them I have something to show you. So we, uh, we make it to the car. I left it in the car. It was frozen, fine. Half melted, but it was okay. We put it on the bonnet of the car in the parking, and I still remember which parking it was, the box park parking behind. <laughs> and they start having the ice cream, and one of them said, uh, so you think this is going to sell? I said, well, I hope so, and that's the intention. He's <laughs> like, okay. Good luck. <laughs> I said, did you not like it? He's like, no, but I, I don't see why anybody would want to try to start an ice cream business. So it wasn't the fact that the quality wasn't great. It was the fact that the, uh, the whole idea had no point. So, you know, this is already feeding into my imposter syndrome. The fact that, you know, I feel like a mushroom that sprouted in the middle of the scene. <laughs> like, there's nobody, like, no, you, so, no, my sister was kind enough for me to have a small corner in her kitchen, and that's the only connection I had with FMB. Mm. 
there was nobody else. So uh, we continue doing R&D and we launch our first collection in Ramadan. Uh, had a few orders here and there. And uh, it went great from there. I sent the, uh, the I sent a package to a friend of a friend who had a social media account. The intention wasn't for him to post. When when he would review restaurants and food, he would be very eloquent and critique them in a very nice manner. So I thought the only question I had was, is this edible or not? <laughs> let's not even go there. Like, let's not even go if it's nice, fantastic, what's there to improve. Let's start with edible or not. So four days later, he posted about it. And uh, we ended up having that evening around 100 and 150 Order. request orders. So this is all through social media. This is through an Instagram account. This is this is through a Snapchat account. Snapchat account, and and this is still the way you sell today. Yes, we are growing up. We are okay. launching a website soon. Okay. So we, so the next step would be online ordering. Yes, essentially. Yes. So I can go on my Instagram account or Snapchat, whatever it would link me to the website. One black sesame, one this, one that. Yes. And may I ask, why have you not or are you not going the physical route, whether through your own locations, which exist, a lot of ice cream shops and gelato shops, you see them, uh, or even like, uh, what do you call it, that little uh, beautiful uh, thing they do, like the mobile one, or through maybe a, a known brand, you know, and go and, and you can get that gelato. I mean, I know you're Masani, you're available, you have a relationship with Mirzam, and I can get your gelato there. But why did you not go more for physical locations? Why has it been always an online, pretty much cloud kitchen type yes. concept? So the, there's, there's an intention to, uh, mm. to be physical mm. uh, in terms of pickup points. There is. The main chance would be our existing wholesale network. Interesting. So th- this, this, this project has been fueled by the community, backed by the community. You don't want to compete with... I do not want to compete friends. with vendors that have supported me from day one. This concept of community is very important to you. We've spoken about this at some point, and I'm very curious to hear more about it. How do you find that community? Because to me, it feels like you and your brand are very much part of a extremely supportive community of mostly local brands that have grown up with each other, more or less. Am yes. I right? Yes, correct. And to my understanding, you have sort of uh, impromptu meetups or frequent meetups where you exchange ideas and brainstorm and exchange advice and so on and so forth? So I had, uh, in my first year, I had uh, you know, some sort of success in, during Ramadan and summer. And then in uh, December and January, uh, things have slowed down because obviously, you know. Gelato, yeah. <laughs> it's more of a people, summer thing. Yeah. You know, because, you know, you're, you're, uh, in Dubai it reaches minus 20 and people die from freezing. So you, you might want to Sah. cut down on the ice cream. Yeah, 100%. That has been my concern every January. Thank you. Which is uh, which? Which prompted me to question uh, whether or not this idea is a you know, is feasible or not sustainable. Sustainable. Global warming is playing to your my advantage. Advantage for sure. <laughs> Keep at it. So the conversation I had with this uh, wholesale client turned friend, Kathy uh, Johnson of uh, Mirzam Chocolate, and I was like, you know what? I'm done with this, and I'm going to close down. Mm. Yeah, oh, too soon? Like, it didn't even last a year. And uh, she said, so what is it that you're lacking? There's nobody to talk to. I'm on my own. I I'm on my own. Way. 
Well, I had Hany, but really, if you know Hany, I mean, I'm not sure how much talking there is, but you know, I love him to death. But yes, I see your point. Like there's, there's nobody else to talk to. And like, how much am I going to speak to you about recipes and pop-ups and all that? Eventually, you're going to get sick of it. Yeah. How, how much am I going to talk to my sister as well, Amel? So um, three weeks later, uh, she, uh, she had this idea existing in her mind where she wanted to gather homegrown food makers into a group, a support system. And uh, she created the group and I was added to that group. So I get a message separately that says, be nice, make friends. I said, oh, so I'm in a WhatsApp group now of complete strangers. Okay, now I understand why I was never invited to this group. Because I was wondering the whole time why I've never invited. And it's now very clear, okay? At least my ego is no longer bruised. <laughs> it's because of the make nice part. Okay, got it. And this became my support system. And this became what fueled me into working and collaborating with other brands, supplying them. Some of them were suppliers to me as well. Um, a member of the group was my cheese maker who used to supply me with goat cheese. And I found the reason that uh, I started this business for. And it gave me purpose and uh, it gave me a motivation uh, to strive to what I want to achieve. Some of them are now doing you know, amazing work. Yeah. So... When we think about Dubai, because we get a lot of uh, this, uh, this question comes up, and I'm sure you have been asked this by uh, people that work either with the government or, you know, have some kind of influence. And I have been asked this before, what can we do to help entrepreneurs in Dubai thrive, not just in F&B, but generally speaking, what kind of support do they need? And from what you're saying, for example, this kind of group, right, was hugely helpful to you, probably remains very helpful to you, but you almost stumbled upon it, right? Yes. And it takes time, and you stumbled upon it, maybe someone else doesn't. So for example, I didn't stumble upon it. We now know why, because it says be nice, but that's, I digress. Just to make it clear, the be nice, make friends message was sent personally to me, because I was the problem in the group. Oh, then now I feel really bad, because I was not even sent that group. I mean, at least I, would, I should have been sent that message. I could have said, well, I'm not nice, Kathy. Don't invite me. And then she's like, fine. But I didn't even, I didn't even make it. Yeah. And others made it. We have, we, we, we we have a strict rigid criteria of people who joined that group. So. And I think it's because I, I believe that Hatta Mantar is part of the group and you had an Egyptian quota. So, yes. Uh, and it, no, I'm far more no. Egyptian than him, by the way. I just want to say that I should lobby for that spot. A bold Egyptian quota. <laughs> <laughs> and he took that spot. He so took the, the spot. Yes. A bold, yeah. Well, he's now in the States for a couple of months. Do you think we can just casually coup d'etat him and replace him while he's gone? He'll never find out. I show up next to the next meeting. Thanks, dinner. Well, well the meetings haven't happened in a while because I think yeah. everybody has, in a, f a f couple of years, but because everybody has <laughs> hope, like flourished and is yeah, busy doing important. things. They're too important. <laughs> they're too like busy everybody, we're, the yeah, money. we're all busy <laughs> counting the money. And, or... Wondering, you now meet in a vault, or, in a giant vault with your cash. Or wondering why on earth did we even start doing yeah. this in the beginning? To me, Masaran, one of the things that if I'm, I'm, I actually think about is when you're saying how do you help entrepreneurs, it's exactly the, these kind of groups in some way to try to create something that's a bit more process-driven so that entrepreneurs in various fields, let's just talk about F&B because it's a field we're both in, can hook up into the hook into these groups. I mean, I was telling you, for example, about 
in tech in the US, you have groups like Y Combinator, amazing. You know, you go in, you go through the process, and then you have a um, you know, Slack channel that everybody hooks up to. You get introduced. They're like, you need a lawyer, bam. You need accounting, bam. You need HR support, bam. We have to all figure it out on our own, and there's merit to that. But I think trying to create perhaps a process by which some of these groups exist uh, would be helpful, and probably far more helpful than capital or, or any. I remember what we needed the most was exactly that kind of thing. You needed support of other entrepreneurs that you can speak to and be like, are you going through the same thing or not? Or am I crazy? When I started doing this, I started it because I wanted to make ice cream. But then there's a whole package that comes with the process that a lot of people may not be aware of. Uh, a lot of people may be aware of, but I certainly wasn't. Dealing with uh, you know, your finances, dealing with cash flow, cash flow dealing with cost, the problems with supply uh, chain. employees, yeah. sales. So you and Hani are founders of The Lighthouse, and The Lighthouse has grown into uh, you know, a, a group of four, restaurants. Five? Five. Including Time Out, yeah. Including Time Out. So, and the only reason you know of Canvas was through a friend. Correct. And you happened to be a retail customer of Canvas before. Uh, anything any, else? Any, anything else. What if I decided to approach Hani and Hashim uh, when you haven't even tried Canvas as a brand? How am I going to approach this? We've never met. We don't have common friends. Correct. There's nobody to introduce me to you on a professional level. So do I just show up with a box of ice cream and just... Well, in fact, I think you did. And you know, I've been eyeing it the whole time. I'm going to give you another five to ten minutes, and then I feel like I have to at least try something. It's my breakfast. But yes, you, you, would, yeah, you would show up, I suppose, with a box of ice cream and say, I'm Ahmed, and you know, I'd like you to try it. But on, your chances of success this way are not very high. It's not great. And is no. that the right way to do it? Probably not. But I wouldn't even know if that's the right, thing to, the right way question. to do it or not. Yeah. Uh, okay, you've made a sale. You've uh, you started making business with a cafe, for example. So what's next? How do you offer a new product? How do you offer a new you know? If you think if you believe that a certain flavor fits well with that brand, you know, how would you approach it? It now happens to be free flowing because I think uh, you've reached a certain momentum. There's there's momentum and there's you you you're familiar with the people you, uh, yeah, you're, you talking you're talking to. But what if I was to do that from the beginning? With no support, with no network, it would have been a very difficult situation. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Ahmed's journey with Canvas Gelato and hear about some of the funny stories people have made up about him and the Canvas Gelato brand. That's right after the short break. Welcome back. I'm Hesha Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with our guest, Ahmed El Marri, founder of Canvas Gelato. Do you see generally the brand more as a wholesale B2B brand or more of a customer facing B2C brand in terms of your personal interests? Obviously, the brand goes both ways, right? And even if it goes, you, you are selling wholesale, ultimately you're touching a customer like me and Mirzam. I understand that. But when you think about new flavors, what do you want to do for Canvas? Do you think more about the restaurant owners or your potential wholesale customer? And as you said, a fit. Masalan, if the Lighthouse would collaborate with, with, uh, with uh, Canvas, what would be the right flavor? Or more, what kind of thing would Hashem like? 
Mish Hashem being lighthouse owner, Hashem being um, end customer, consumer on the street? Both. Both. Because uh, well, well, the intention when I started was to offer retail only. Mm. Uh, because you know you would want to interact with human beings and you know, retail customers are human beings, but also wholesale customers who are a right fit to the brand, uh, you know, have the founders involved, yes. have the chefs involved, uh, and it is not they are not machines. I see what you're saying. From it's a, still from very a, much a personal decision that's underlying their decision making. Which which really makes it in a way kind of a personal. If customer. I wa- if I was to if I was to send you an email with a list of flavors and a price list, would that go as well as me having a conversation with you with what is better, uh, which is a better fit for the lighthouse menu? Obviously, you'd want to have what's a better fit for the lighthouse menu. If you were a Japanese restaurant, there's no reason for you to have a hazelnut and pistachio ice cream. Probably not. But you'd want to have black sesame, black sesame, miso, yuzu. Correct. And all the other Japanese ingredients. Correct. Because they work well with your brand. Now that's a conversation we can have without sending you a, a menu to look at. And is your menu development a set of core flavors that you then build around or is it ever-changing? There, there's a core uh, a menu that we build okay. around, but there's also the, uh, the exotic ingredient that pops up every once in a while or the exotic request of a certain flavor that you need to make from you know, from scratch. We try and rotate flavors three to six times a year, depending on you know the occasion, season. So, so Ramadan. does anything stay constant throughout the year? Yes. Some do? Yes. The, the best sellers, I would yes. imagine. Okay. So what are some of the best sellers out of curiosity? Uh, pistachio baklava. Okay. Which is pistachio ice cream uh, with homemade baklava smashed. We, so we make all our pastes, and nut butters, and sauces all in-house. How sensitive are you to feedback? I remember when I first started, I tried very hard to take feedback well, but it was very difficult not to take it personally. Even though I knew a lot of people didn't mean it in any personal way, and in fact, some were actually trying to help. Not everybody was trying to help, but some were trying to help. But it was very difficult not to personalize it as a personal attack, even though I know it wasn't. My mind told me something and I acted differently. How... How was it for you? If I had a heart rate monitor, every time somebody would give me feedback, you'd see a spike in my heart rate and for no reason. Because everybody wants to give you feedback, whether it was relevant or not. Well, that's anyway. Everybody has an opinion on food. Everybody has, but the intention is, is, is mostly uh, coming from a good place. Yeah, it is. It is. Because it's so personal. It's intensely personal for them. It's personal for them. And because it's you who creates it, Yes, they, they, they need to give you the feedback. It's very personal for you as but well. But are you able to detach yourself from the feedback, good or bad, Yanni? Were you able to, to over time, I mean, I found myself over time, it doesn't mean I'm not acknowledging the feedback, relax, I'm very much acknowledging it, but I'm able to detach myself emotionally a little bit more so that I actually do something with it. At the beginning, it used to be taken as yeah, almost like an affront. So, here, so here's the thing. Here's an individual who had no background in FMB decides to make an ice cream business, who already suffers from imposter syndrome, and who initially had no network, and probably thought he had no idea what he was doing. And for you to give him feedback, whether good or bad, <laughs> anyways fuel that imposter syndrome. Yeah. So if you were to tell me, I did not like this, oh, then you must be right. Yeah. And if you were to tell me, I like this you know, flavor very much, 
the first response from me would be, really? Yeah. Because I would not believe positive feedback. And I'd, but I would very much so believe negative feedback. Because, yeah, of course they are saying the truth. And was most of this feedback coming through social media channels? No, customers were fine. It was my personal network. Ah, your personal network. Yeah, and like, even if they said the good things, they must have been saying it because they want me to feel good. And were and they? So, no. <laughs> it was all in my head. Okay. Look, part of what I do, part of this is, I mean, there's a bit of armchair psychology that I do here. So feel free to, you know, we can talk about imposter syndrome, other things. We can get overly personal, but I can give you some free advice. And I, I feel very qualified to do it, even though I have no qualifications. When, when, you, first, when you first approached me to the podcast, that was a year ago. And I had no idea how the Lighthouse conversations would grow. Now, after hearing most of the episodes, after listening to the most of the episodes. Thank you. It was... Uh, it it feel it feels now that I am stepping into a mental health facility, and you know because every it's single it's a, it's a lot of, it's and a lot there's of. it's a lot and there's a reason because I'm not the only one who's suffering from imposter syndrome and no, suffering right. from issues. Everybody right. else is. What this platform has highlighted is yes, there are successful people, but everybody has issues. One hundred percent, and I'll be very honest. This is exactly. First of all, I want to say that I really appreciate the feedback you've given me because you always give me feedback on the podcasts uh, and the different episodes, which I've always appreciated. Really, that's been great and a constant. But secondly, I think that was one of the main reasons we launched this podcast three plus years ago, which was um, essentially, you, you said it, everybody has issues, but the idea was we wanted to unmask uh, the person a little bit, not to say that, they just have issues to say that they have a journey. Let's talk about that journey. It's a journey of growth. And the journey of growth will invariably have pros and cons, highs and lows. Um, and let's not gloss over that because without that, you don't get to where this person is. Most of these people sitting in, in the seat you're sitting in today have had a measure of success or frankly, they wouldn't be here. Not they wouldn't be here because I only want to interview successful people. I wouldn't have heard about them, right, at the end of the day. So that's the truth. So imagine this. We're all standing next to a waterfall and I have to climb that waterfall. I'm climbing that waterfall, I'm climbing the mountain and all, all, you know, all this water is pouring on me, on my face, and all I can feel is I'm drowning. Everybody else around me is seeing that growth. But I don't happen to see it because I'm busy drowning in my own issues. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It's and if you have this conversation with every single person, they'd say positive things about what you're doing, but they wouldn't see that they're growing as well. You're and unless you tell them, no, then they'll take a step back and they'll say, probably you are right. We are all growing at the same. No, some of us are, you know, have a faster pace than others. But looking back at four or five years ago, most of the brands I was associated with then have grown into being something worthwhile. I can say the same thing. Now, worthwhile doesn't have to be financially worthwhile, but... No, they're relevant. They're, they're relevant, relevant and they're doing... self-fulfillment. There is people, you know, absolutely. I mean, it's not just a measure of financial success. It's a measure of they are now appeared on the map. For and they're reason. doing good work. Doing fantastic work. They're doing good work in terms of the product they offer, in terms of you know the craft that they make, but no, but we don't see it in ourselves. Yeah, it's difficult, and it goes back to a little bit this point that you made, which is, you know, there aren't obvious communities here, places for people. I mean, one of the reasons behind the lighthouse, especially in D three, from the beginning was to make it a hub for entrepreneurs. I mean, people to meet, and I was always hoping, and this happened over time that you might come one day for coffee or for a meal and actually meet someone else that you have heard of or interested in meeting, et cetera, and that creates a natural hub because 
Obviously, we congregate around food and drink and things like that. So that is very, very important. And you have today on the digital front some conversations that take place, but I don't think they replace the physical relationships that we could have of meeting and talking and, and, and so on and so forth. And that's really, really important uh, because to your point, when you look at Dubai as a whole and the entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial landscape, it's grown hugely. And um, there was baby steps, but the cumulative experience is quite something. I mean, today being a homegrown brand is taken for granted. To your point exactly, up to 20, even 17 when you started, we started in 2017. It was still a, a rarity. I mean, you were one of X, X being a handful of, of new brands popping up. And you would connect with small business owners so easily because you felt like you were part of yeah. a movement. Yeah. You were part of a group of people who were trying to do something different. They were trying to make things better. Not to say that, you know, global or franchises or international brands aren't doing great, but in you're every bringing something in every, different to the market. You're doing something different to the market and every and every country you visit and every city you go to, you'd like to see what the city offers. When I first started, yeah. uh, I thought I was alone. Yeah. And I hid under Behind the uh, Canvas Instagram account. That Farah does this all the time. Farah does this all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is why me and Farah clicked online. <laughs> yeah. Clearly your Instagram buddies, I heard, yeah. So I hid under the brand and I separated the brand from my personal identity for a very long time. What was the purpose of that? The purpose was if, if it was of service to the brand. Mm. You didn't feel lending your name to it would help? I, at that point, probably not. Mm. Uh, I think I was wrong. I, I can't say if it was right or wrong, right? This is for you. But what I can tell you is it allowed the brand to evolve in a direction that was very uninhibited because there, was, it, the, there wasn't the weight of a person on it. I knew you for some time now, but a lot of people had no idea who the founder, the owner, in fact, and spoke to a, a person behind Instagram. In fact, I think many of them thought you were a woman. I think you thought as well. Yeah, I did too. Until you showed up. Until I showed up and you thought maybe I was coming to the wrong table. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 I had that all the time. And yeah, I had, and it was an, that's an interesting experiment, right? Because I, I don't know if it's right or wrong one. I think it enabled the brand to evolve very freely for, for a long time. It evolved the brand to evolve very freely. But what is interesting is the narratives that people create around the persona behind the brand or the, the person. Uh, I, heard, I heard many stories about myself. Uh, one being a uh, woman, mother of two. <laughs> the other is... Uh, How old are the kids? No idea. I haven't seen them. Like <laughs> Mine, yes, but as a, as a mother of two, I have no idea who these oh, kids okay. are. But mine are 10, 7, and 4. Okay. Me as a father. Yeah, <laughs> the, the real kids. The real kids. <laughs> Not the imaginary kids. Uh, we had a pop-up once at Mirzam. It was National Day 2020. So somebody stepped to me at a pop-up and she was like, um, you know, I've interacted with the brand a few times I've had it a few at a few friends' houses and you know, it's nice, well done. Thank you, I'm honored. So where does this love for gelato come from? I said, what do you mean? She's like, it must be from your Italian wife. <laughs> and I said, Italian wife? <laughs> Is she good looking? <laughs> like, what do you mean? I said, because clearly I haven't seen her and I had, I, I had no idea I had an Italian wife. So mm. she said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not married to an Italian uh, woman. Like, so... Where does this come from? I said, I wanted to make ice cream and I made it. And I asked her a question. I said, where did you hear that story from? 
She said, I heard it from a few places. I said, so a few places know that I'm married to an Italian wife. Because only Italians can make gelato. And I don't know. I went back home and I told my wife that apparently you're Italian. That's what people think. How did she feel about she that? She was not impressed. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's fun because people make up. Fun. It's funny. They, they see what, they make up what they want to see, right? In a way. And because most homegrown businesses of food and dessert are founded by women. Correct. And because the, uh, you know, the color palette on the Instagram account is. Very colorful. Very colorful and bright. Yeah. So I get the occasional DMs from women that say, Hala Habibti. Yeah. But they think I'm a woman and you respond back, Hala Habibti, because you don't want to make it awkward for them. Yeah, of course. And they order uh, ice cream and, you know, if it evolves, it evolves you talking about your kids and how they're doing. And they, probably to this day, they assume there's a woman behind the brand, but hopefully they won't be listening to this conversation. No, I think, well, yeah, we can always, you can put this on your, you can always point them to this now, to, to the real identity. I think that... Um, that's an interesting point. I'll give you an example that's somewhat related. I mean, when, I, when we first started The Lighthouse, I wasn't sure, I don't, I have a private Instagram account, so it's not widely shared or anything like that. But I wasn't sure whether I wanted to share things about The Lighthouse on my account because I, it was sort of along the lines of what you just said. I didn't want to conflate. I had my own identity. I also had my own interests outside of The Lighthouse. And I wasn't sure if those two can merge and coexist. Over time, I felt a lot more comfortable doing that and still having my own identity, so to speak. But at the beginning, it was very difficult and I, I, I hesitated. So I completely understand. Because as a business, you weren't stable, probably. May I feel may and, I was definitely and, unstable. And, and, and the success of the lighthouse would be attributed to you personally and the failure of the lighthouse would be That's attributed exactly right. to you personally. That's exactly and you do right. not want that weight. Exactly right. I also didn't want the brand to evolve as... Hashem's Me. restaurant. Yeah, Hashem's restaurant or Hashem's concept stores or Hashem's this and even creating other, uh, you know, uh, extensions of the brand, if you will, like this one, right, was sort of saying exactly that, namely that, you know, that's one of the things we do, but all of these things fit with each other in some way um, that may over time evolve, it may change, but we don't want to personalize it. It's not me, there's a big team behind us all of them bring in something to this brand. Hami and I happen to be the ones that found it, but that's certainly not how we got from A to Z. We got from A to Z because of the help of all of those people, not just working within the lighthouse, but as you said, collaborators and, and the community around us. I mean, that has been extremely helpful uh, over the years. Your neighbors are part of your community. 100%. Your, the business owners upstairs, you know, yes. the, restaurants, the restaurant right. Right, uh, right across the street. Correct. You you have a relationship with Samar Hamada, who is probably, you know, people can deem. I don't talk about uh, this publicly that we have a relationship. I, I tell most people I don't I don't know him. Cut. I mean, honestly, it's just for... <laughs> Cut this off the podcast. Why? It's fun. He loves this. <laughs> no, no, I mean, as a joke. No. As part of the script. People would see it as competition. But yeah. it's more than competition. Yes, okay. there's competition, but also there's... Camaraderie. We honestly don't see it as competition. And if you look at Samar and others, that, and he was one of the early, I mean, they're our neighbors in D3, as you said, from the beginning, we've, we've exchanged notes. We've always spoken. I mean, we went to Yes Bay Abu Dhabi because uh, Samar told me, and if it doesn't do well, I'm going to blame him, by the way, just on the side. But he said, I'm going there. You know, why don't you look into it? So it's always been very collaborative with the brands around us, except if they choose to make it competitive and take a more combative attitude, that's different. Then there's nothing I can do. Some have, but very few. And competition is not, there's nothing wrong with competition. It's, 
you're com- you're competing to better yourself grow but it's when a business sees success as the failure of others it's when you start having a problem so you've been around now as a brand for five years five plus uh, what have you learned or what have you discovered about yourself during this period that you did do you feel you didn't know or maybe you didn't understand as well because I know that a big part of this for all of us is there's this journey of self-discovery in a way I, uh, I read a post I can't remember where but I think I've shared it with you and uh, the the decision for somebody to open the business is the intention of him to do deep uh, soul searching yeah and uh, maybe you uh, that wasn't the intention but you know but it comes along comes along this yeah. journey and you find out more about yourself things that you like and dislike and it highlights uh, you know what you're good at and you know, the problems you may I don't want to say problems, but you know the issues where you lag skill and talent and you know whatnot. What I learned is um, this business started off as a hobby, but it outgrew this intention and became something. But was it really a hobby? Yes, or it was. It, a, it wasn't. A, it was a creative outlet. Yeah, what but it's not a hobby. I mean, I, I did not meet you when you first started the brand, but certainly since I've known you, you've taken this seriously. So, I mean, not that a hobby is not serious, and I'm saying it was a creative outlet, but I think you were very willing to make this your calling in a way. I mean, Yanni, something you, that... You, you find out. You find yeah. out eventually, but it was my creative hobby because I wanted to try and do something different and creative and, you know, come up with a new, uh, with a new outlet for me to experiment with things. Then it grew into being uh, uh, you know, a brand and a business that people want to work with. And then you start thinking, oh, so people actually like this? And people want me to supply them in cafes? That wasn't the intention. Yeah. And then it evolves into what the true calling is. God has plans for you, or whatever plans you have. Was there hesitation because uh, you have a family, you, have obliga- you feel some obligations towards I mean, was this a concern? I mean, how was the conversation with your wife when you started this about, look, I'm going to start this. I don't know what direction it's going to take. I mean, it's a big risk, right, you're taking. Personal risk, financial risk, uh, reputational risk. Um, everybody was supportive 100%. That's great. That's not always the case. That's not always the case. But also, uh, I've been supported by my sister. I've mitigated risk in some way. Yeah, so there was a path in the family. There were baby steps that I've taken to, to make it easy for me to back off if things did not work. Okay, that's that makes sense. And that was the plan. Okay, the plan was to back off when things didn't make sense. Now, what didn't so that's happen? That's a very important point because I'm sure a lot of people are listening and thinking about starting a business. So you had the backup plan. I had a back off plan, which back is plan. which is to you know make it easy for me to exit if it doesn't work. Which is a backup plan, essentially. Which is a backup plan. And what would happen if you if when the backup plan you would go back and get a job? I still have a job. Ah, so it was in parallel with your job. Yes. So would you advise others to do the same, um, to start it off while they have a job, see, try, and then maybe kind of you know, move full-time, which you haven't done yet, but, but others may have, if it succeeds? Or would you say, you know what, it's so all-consuming that I actually would say, leave your job, give it your best shot, try it for a year, and say, if it doesn't work within a year, go back and get a job. What, what, which, which direction would you think makes more sense? I'd say both, because... The, the fact that you have a day job makes it very 
mentally consuming. That's my point. But also, on the other hand, uh, what if you do not have a safety net? What if you don't? Correct. Uh, what if you don't have a job that you know provides for the family? Correct. So to your point, I found it impossible to do this while having a job. I actually quit my job, went all out, knowing fully well that this is a huge risk. Spoke very openly to my family about the fact that, look, this is a risk. My backup was, or at least I thought was, look, within a year, if it doesn't work, hopefully I can always get a job because I have some experience already. Um, and I had made some provisions from a financial perspective to be okay for a little while. But it was a huge part of the risk-taking. And I'm with you. I, don't, I couldn't advise people when I'm asked today which direction is the right one. For me, I can say I wasn't able to be nine to five and then coming home and working on this in the evening. That, that didn't work for me. Risking it is what probably made you succeed. Who knows? It put some pressure. And pressure maybe ended up making you find ends to what you, you want to achieve. There's truth to that. It, that. That kind of pressure and stress forces you to keep searching for the right ingredient to keep iterating, whereas potentially having a job gives you a little bit of a false comfort. But I still have something to get back yeah, to. Yeah, and I can, and time is on my side. Well, ultimately, you cannot, you know, you, you, within a, you have to start within a period of time in these business, as you all know. It either takes off within, I would say, 12 to 18 months, most cases, or it doesn't. Now, you can reiterate and keep changing it until you get there. That's fine. But usually you know if there's a product market fit or not, right? Correct. It also comes down to the personality of the, of the person, if, if they are able to handle that much pressure or not. That's right. I think that's correct. You know, some people will end up you know, cracking, knowing that they do not have a job and knowing that this is their livelihood. Yeah, even, if they have, you know, even if they have a, you know, a backup plan, but it still causes pressure. No, not everybody can handle that. I mean, our, our mutual friend that we were joking earlier about, Hatim spoke about this here on the podcast. There's no right or wrong here. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And I agree with you that the formula has to... Work for you. Work for you. If I was to go back in time and uh, fix, it's not a regret, but something I would fix is take uh, this project more seriously from the beginning. Okay. Uh, and not treat it as a hobby. Because I think many of us, you know, do something because it's fun, it's creative. What would have that achieved though? Just you would have gotten to your goal, quote unquote, quicker? Yes. Okay. Quicker is not the word, but more timely. So I, I would have probably had a website running for a few years now. I would have Things probably that, yeah, okay. Go, certain goals. Certain within goals. the evolution of the of the of the business. Yes, it would have evolved faster than yeah, it that. Had. Maybe you took more of a leisurely pace. My it's working. Yes, I'm not not under huge pressure. The website can wait another year. Correct. You would have probably been like year two. The website has to be up. Yes, correct. That makes sense. That would also given me a steeper learning curve to learn from. So maybe five years post setup and post start. Uh, this conversation would have been different. Now, I don't regret any of that because that's part of the journey. Correct. And uh, I am uh, I would have enjoyed it as much as I enjoy it now. It's This uh, business has given me the opportunity to meet people I have never met before and people I look up look up to. When you invited me to, uh, to join the podcast, I think a year ago, I should have said yes then. I understood though. Because, no, because the roster of guests... Uh, wasn't as big as it is now. So now when I look at the roster of guests and I see people like uh, Nada Dibs and Cyril and Mohamed Orfali and you know, Hatim Matar and all those other people 
بعدين يطلع لك احمد المري في النص طالع يعني لا لا اي دونت اي دونت اجري وذ ذات اتول اي اكشلي ابريشيتد اند ريسبكتد يور ديسيجن ات ذا تايم بيكوز ات تولد مي سمثينج اباوت يو اند نوينج يور سيلف اند ذاتس ون اوف ذا بوينتس يعني اي ثينك بيبول نيد تو نو ذات ذي ريدي انا وي جيت وي جيت ذس ايفري وانس ان ا وايل اي جيت سينج لوك اي وود لاف تو بات اي ام نوت ريدي اور اي وود لاف تو بات اي ام فيري فيري شاي اي ام مثلا انتروفيرتد اي دونت لايك تو بي اند ان سم كيسز اي بوش ا بيت اند سي لوك We'll make this easy for you because we know how to do that by now, I think, I hope. But in some cases, I'll say that's perfectly fine. You know, that's not for everyone. I mean, I really do. Um, and, and what was interesting in your case is I think you didn't feel ready and it wasn't. Sometimes we get, you know, I'm not ready. Wait until I launch this or that. I'm like, no, guys, this conversation is not about a new launch or a new market product. It's about the journey. It's about the journey. But I, um, I completely understand. And I think you do these things when, when you are ready for it. When we rekindled our conversation a few weeks ago, you were ready and it was obvious to me. I would, I would have not asked again, Yanni. You know, yes, so because, it's also uh, understanding your, your audience, understanding the guests. There's a lot of things like you that two years ago, I wasn't comfortable maybe speaking about in public that today I feel a lot more at ease, Yanni. It's a, a beautiful thing about it. I, I came out of the freezer. You came out of the freezer. <laughs> And who says we can transition our podcast with Ahmed into an ice cream mukbang slash cooking show? Netflix, are you listening? What's this one here? This one next to you is peanut butter and jam. It's uh, roasted. Uh, Keep this very close to me. Roasted and freshly ground peanuts. Chirag, we very deliberately only brought two bowls. I don't know if you've noticed, but I hope you got the cue. No, the two bowls are for me and you. They get a special tub by request. They get, they get their own tub? They get their own tubs. So he gets a, he gets a vegan tub and she gets a black sesame. So you're fine. You can have your bowl if you want. My bowl is now not special at all. I get this tiny bowl. He gets a whole tub that's vegan. Fine. He's Keep a producer. I need to be friends with the producer. So this is which one? Ah, this is the hojicha. Hojicha is a is the green tea roasted over charcoal. Oh, this is fantastic. This is so interesting. Different. Very different. It's subtle. It's uh, not it. strong, but it's it's lingering. It's long lasting. غريب طعمه. Wow. And as a tea, it's uh, it's really really nice. It's very different. Like you, it's roasted. It's hojicha. Is that how you pronounce it? Hojicha. Hojicha. Yeah. And I'm still trying to get over the fact that you got your own tub, but it's fine. You know, by the way, my tubs have my initials on them. I'm making this up, but the audience doesn't know that because they can't see it. <laughs> this is the smell of peanut butter. Amazing. Well, Ahmed has been the most generous of guests. No one else brought anything. We'd have easily taken it. This is delicious. I like how this is uh, evolving into a cooking show for some reason. <laughs> But that's the whole point. Who says we can compete with Orfali? Here we go. No, no, Allah khaliq. No, Allah if you're listening to this, please, yeah, I'm not competing I'm sure you with will you. Be. This is Hashim's cooking show. This is Hashim's cooking, Hashim show, cooking show. And I'm only a guest. Uh, more important than the Orphan, Netflix, are you listening? Put your eyes on the prize. No, I just started the Lighthouse conversation. Is that Netflix? Fair enough. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashim Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. We mentioned Samer Hamada, founder of Akibadori, and Hatem Matar, founder of Matar Farms, on this episode. You'll find my conversations with them and many more in our extensive collection of previous episodes in your podcast players, including Apple, Spotify, and Remy, and Google Podcasts. So go there and press the follow button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. 
By the way, we're taking a short break for the summer and we'll return in September with brand new episodes. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE and send us an email at connect at thelighthouse.ae. We'll see you in a few short weeks.